What is your greatest problem right now? What's the greatest problem that you faced this past week? What's the greatest problem you may anticipate facing tomorrow as we start off a new week? There's probably no shortage of challenges in our lives that might immediately come to our mind. There might be financial situations where we feel like the problem is we don't have enough money. Or we feel like we don't have enough time, that we'd be better served if there was an eight-day week, right, or 26 hours in a day. Uh, Maybe there's problems in relationships. Maybe there's physical problems and challenges with health. There may be a a number of difficult challenges, even trials that you're experiencing and going through right now. But, But I wonder how often what's first to pop in our mind when we think about those problems are those very important trials, I don't mean to, to downplay those, but those trials that we experience, circumstances around us, that those maybe jump to the forefront of our minds as the greatest problems that we experience. But what about the problems inside of us? What about sin? What about pride? How great of a problem has that been in our lives this past week? We think about sin that we've struggled with, most likely you could connect an underlying sin to every sin that we've committed this past week. And, and Peter just led us through a prayer of confession. I'm sure at some point in that prayer of confession, you could pray with him, yes, Lord, I'm guilty of that this week. Yes, I, I seek cleansing and forgiveness from you. But I wonder even if you track that specific sin, might it be connected to pride? You know, John Stott illustrated how, how dangerous pride is in our life and how important humility is in the Christian life through this quote. He said at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. You know, we'll face problems big and small this week, really for the rest of our lives, problems that may come and and, and go, but we can expect, even as Christians, that we, we will be fighting the problem of pride for the rest of our lives this side of glory. Well, today in Genesis, we look at a story of pride. It's an account of the, the Tower of, of, of Babel, where we see a story of, of living for self-glory. We see a story of a, a rivalry of the kingdom of man trying to oppose the kingdom of God, a story of glory that led to disobeying God, dishonoring him, and as a result, the dispersing and dividing of the nations. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. That's where we've been for the last couple of months, going through this book of Genesis together as a church. If you're here this morning, it's your first time, it's really easy to jump in on where we're going to be this morning. Take a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you want to use that Bible in front of you in the pew rack, Uh, Turn to page 8 in the Pew Bibles, page 8. We're going to be in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And if you're using that Pew Bible this morning and you don't have a Bible at home, take that Pew Bible home with you as our gift to you. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word that you could read and know more about who God is and what He's done in Christ. Let me read for us all of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, as we begin our time together this morning. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, last week we spent time in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, it looked a lot like a genealogy, and really what it was was a table of nations. And we saw in Genesis 10 what Noah's three sons became after the flood. We saw individuals and people groups and places listed there in Genesis chapter 10. And we noted that, that while all of humanity came from one family, descending from Adam and then from Noah and his three sons after the flood, we also saw there the people became divided. They became divided through language and geography and, and different nations. Well, here in chapter 11, as we look at the construction of the city of Babel and the tower there in Babel, we find an account that explains how it was that the nations came to be scattered across the face of the earth. So, so the account of the Tower of, of Babel, it shows us the pride of humanity, and it shows God's opposition to that pride. It shows self-glory and God's glory, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. We see in this account of the Tower of Babel that God will not give his glory to another. We see the sinfulness of, of humanity, which we can certainly relate with, and we should, certainly should confess as sin when we seek to glorify ourselves. We see how big of a problem self-glory is in the account of this story, and we see God's commitment. God is faithful to glorify himself. He is faithful to spread his glory through salvation to the ends of the earth, and that's what we see in this story of the Tower of Babel. Now, throughout Genesis, we've seen God's plan to spread his glory in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and from Genesis 3 on, in redemption. God's plan is to spread his glory to all nations and all of the earth. And in our passage this morning, we're going to consider how human pride opposes God's glory, and we're going to consider God's response to human pride. So for our outline this morning, I want us to see two lessons on pride. Two lessons on pride, that's our outline this morning. The first lesson we'll find in verses 1 through 4. First lesson in verses 1 through 4 is this. Selfish ambition opposes God's glory. Selfish ambition opposes God's glory. Now, we mentioned last week that Genesis chapter 11, it, it falls chronologically before Genesis 10. So notice here in verse 1, 
of chapter 11, we see that there was, was one unified language, that the people spoke in the same words. And you may remember from last week in chapter 10, the descendants of Noah's three sons, they were traced as being divided by language. So you may have read and wondered, well, why do we read in chapter 10, they were divided by language, and then the beginning of chapter 11, read they spoke one language. Well, that's because the order of the chapters here, it's arranged by theme, not by chronology. So, so in chapter 11, we go back in time, and we look at how it was that the nations were dispersed. So it's important to know chapter 10, it shows what happened in the division of the nations. We see what happened, what became of Noah's three sons, and chapter 11 tells us why it happened. There's a theological lesson for us in chapter 11. So here at the beginning of chapter 11, all of humanity spoke the same language. Now having no language barrier, that would be a blessing. It really would. I mean, if you've ever been in a foreign country, you've traveled somewhere and you can't speak the language, that's uncomfortable. For many of you that are here that English is your second language, you had to adjust to that. Maybe, maybe you still are, and that's, that's challenging. And it's something that sometimes English speakers, you're not realizing how challenging that can be to be in a place where you don't quite understand the language. You're trying to find the right words to use. So having no language barrier, that was a blessing. That was a good thing. There would have been a lot of opportunities to be unified to do good, to praise God together, to use that blessing for God and for his glory, to, to all praise God together in the same language. But we see here with fallen humanity, this blessing of one language, it wasn't used to glorify God, but rather to dishonor him. Now you may have read through verse 2, and you might think, okay, people are migrating, they're settling on land, like what's out of order here with that? Well, there are several details here that help us know more of what was happening. First, notice that the people, they were migrating eastward. That direction of traveling east, immediately to the original audience, the people of Israel, the wandering people of Israel, they would have heard eastward, and maybe some of you remember from our previous studies what the direction of east, what it, what it signified. Right, so we've seen traveling east before in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden in Eden, sinned against God, thrown out of the garden because their relationship with God ended because they disobeyed God's word. And he banished them from the garden. What direction did they go? East. They traveled eastward. When their son came, first murder in the history of the world, only took one generation for something as horrific as murder to come into the world. When Cain killed his brother Abel, he went further east after he was cursed. Eastward, that's God's judgment for sin. You see, in the book of, of Genesis, traveling east is heading away from the presence of God. Throughout this book, we've seen traveling east is, is moving away from God's blessing to live apart from him independently, independently. And here in chapter 11, there's a continual movement in the wrong direction, heading eastward away from God's presence, life apart from God. A second detail to notice here is that they, they settled. And you may wonder, all right, what, what's wrong with, with the settling here? Well, all right, let's track with this. As the people traveled eastward, they, they settled together, one people, one city in the land of, of Shinar. Now, what was the mandate that God gave again in chapter 9, verse 1, to Noah and his three sons? To be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. 
the repeat of the mandate in Genesis chapter 1 to Adam and Eve in creation. But here in chapter 11, the people weren't filling the earth. They were settling together in one city. And as chapter 11 plays, it plays out, we see the ambition, the motivation behind it. It's not like they just really liked each other and let's all form a happy village together. That's not what was taking place. They wanted to form a strong and mighty people. They wanted to build a, a kingdom there. So rather than spreading out and filling the earth and, and, and being what God had called them to be, worshipers of God who would fill to the ends of the earth, they were settling together. So we see here this was disobedience to God's command. So those small details in verse 2, they communicate that people were moving away from the presence of God and they were disobeying God's command. The building of this city, the building of this tower was a story of life apart from God. I think it's good for us to consider the blessings that God gives us in, in our lives. Those blessings are there for us to, to thank God, to know God, to worship God. Whatever blessings or, or gifts that God sovereignly chooses to give us, they're, they're there for us to honor Him and to glorify Him. But sometimes those very blessings can cause us to drift away. We often long for a comfortable life, but then when we get that comfortable life, we might find ourselves getting spiritually comfortable and drifting away from obedience to God. Well, I wonder what drifting away looks like in your life. The people here were kind of drifting eastward, drifting and then settling, drifting away from the presence of God and then settling into disobedience. I wonder what that looks like in your life. Where are you tempted to drift and to settle into patterns of disobedience to God? Drifting is always subtle. It might just be that it's easy to get sucked into your phone in the morning instead of sucked into God's word. I mean, isn't that how life works? I mean, we know we don't have to go out and plant crabgrass in our front yard. Right? Crabgrass is going to grow. You don't have to water it. You don't have to worry about watering the crabgrass in July. There's going to be weeds growing, kind of plaguing your lawn. You guys have heard me talk about this. It bothers me, right? Well, it works that way in our life with, with sin. Like, you don't have to plan to spend time on social media. You don't have to say, okay, in 2021, I want to plan to spend more than 30 minutes in the morning on social media. It's just going to happen. That, that might be one area. Who knows where else your mind might, might drift. And in that moment, it's, it's not drifting towards God's word. Sin will keep you from that book. And that book will keep you from sin. We, we need time in God's word. And if we give ourselves over to that as a pattern, as a habit in our lives, it starts to form a place where we've drifted to settle into disobedience to God and to his word. We're giving into temptation, drifting slowly away from God, and then settling into patterns of disobedience. We need to be on the guard against that. Brother, brothers and sisters, let's guard our lives against that drifting and, and, and settling. And, you know, that's why we have Sunday morning as just God's gracious provision as a placeholder in our lives. If you didn't pray, confessing sin much this week, thank you, Lord, that we were able to do it this morning. You didn't leave this morning without being able to confess sins. We had a, a prayer of confession. If this week was tough, you found it difficult to praise, thank the Lord that we had an opportunity corporately to praise together this morning. And maybe it was even a ministry for you to be uplifted by others singing praise to God around you. That their voices indeed lifted you up. Just like the wisdom of God's word commands to sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That you receive that blessing of gathering together this morning. If, if your week 
wasn't filled with much time in God's word. Praise God that on Sunday morning, we know there's a placeholder that's going to happen. And that placeholder, the, the, the Sunday morning meeting, the Lord's Day meeting, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, where we come together as a corporate body, is meant to strengthen us, to turn us away from drifting, to turn us away from settling into patterns of disobedience, and rather to be a help and a stimulus in our lives to compel us towards obedience to God and to His Word. You cannot replace the Sunday morning gathering of God's people. And I am so thankful uh, for the saints that are here this morning that have been here for so long. And we know some of you had to take some time off during this weird season of COVID. It is such a delight to see you back. What an example it is to so many young folks here of this repetition, this pattern of faithfulness and obedience to God to come and to worship Him together that we might be able to finish the race together. Let's guard against drifting. Let's guard against settling by running this race together as a church. When verses 3 through 4, we get, we get more clues that fill us in on what was happening in Babel. No, notice the phrases, let us, in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And again, there in verse 4, and let us make a name for ourselves. Where else in Genesis did you hear this phrase, let us? Genesis chapter 1, God, let us make man in our likeness, in our image. That let us statement belonging to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, when we heard this phrase, let us, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, good news. God was creating. He was blessing when he said let us. He was doing good to us. His idea to create us. His joy overflowing in eternity past. That he would come to that moment of creation. When he said let us, the giver of life, creating man and woman in his likeness and image, that was a good thing. The only one who, who should make a name for himself. Indeed, the only one who can rightly make a name for himself is God. And that's what he was doing when he said, let us. You see, for God to make a name for himself is a glorious and great gift. For God to make a name for himself brings joy to all of the earth, to all who would submit and trust in him. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, God created everything and everyone for his glory and for his praise, for his name's sake. And that is a good thing. But this phrase, let us, uttered by the people of Babel, was a horrific evil. It was indicative of them seeking to build their own kingdom. Come, let us do our own thing. Come, let us institute our own plan. Come let us spread our own glory. See, the purpose of them building a city and a high-reaching tower was for their own name and for their own glory. So they were seeking to establish a kingdom of their own, rebelling and turning away from a God and his kingdom, living under his rule and his reign and his authority to form their, their own kingdom for their own namesake, to form their own life apart from God. Now, remember last week in chapter 10, we saw that it was from the line of Ham and his son Cush that a man came named Nimrod. He was a mighty man. We looked at that last week. 
His was a life of self-glory. And the beginning of his kingdom, we were told in chapter 10, was Babel. The building of this city and this tower, it came from him, from his descendants. Nimrod's kingdom, as seen here in Babel, was the direct opposite of what God was doing in building his kingdom. God bringing himself glory. God doing good, spreading his righteousness and peace to the ends of the earth. Babel was a kingdom of self-glory, wickedness and evil spreading through their kingdom being established. Now you may read this and even wonder, you might have had images from being a child and hearing this story and you might have wondered, you know, why is this tower so tall? When I heard this story as a child, I'm thankful that I heard it at such a young age. Uh, But when I heard it, I, I heard it something like there was this tower being built so tall that they were trying to reach heaven. And even as a kid, that struck me as odd because I thought that's weird. Like, uh, think about how tall back then the trade towers were up, Trade Center in New York City, the Empire State Building. thought about how tall those buildings were. I'm like, surely they couldn't have built something larger than that way back in the day. It just kind of seemed odd to me, like even like why try to pursue something like that? Well, well, how tall was it? Well, the only details we get here in verse 4 is that it was a tower that's top would be in the heavens. And the heavens just speaks to the sky. So, so I think it's likely it could have just been an ancient skyscraper, something built that would be impressive, that would stand out as a modern innovation in that day, a, a tower that stretched far into the sky. Now, some scholars suggest this tower was a, a type of temple being constructed to false gods as if the people were seeking to build their own mountain, a mountain they would make, calling on false gods to kind of descend upon them and to bless them. Now, whatever it was that was being built there, however tall it was, what we see clearly in this passage is that the construction project had a motivation and ambition to make a name for themselves. The ambition was to bring themselves glory. So the building project, it's a story of of human pride and self-glory. It was a massive building project, but God was not the architect. We've seen building projects in the book of Genesis. The ark, massive building project, nothing like it in its time. And who was the architect of the ark? It wasn't Noah. Noah just obeyed God and followed his plan. God designed the ark. Here's the material it's going to be made from. Here's the size of it. Here's what you are to do. We see later on in the Pentateuch in the book of Exodus, the construction of the tabernacle, and then later on in the Old Testament, the construction of the temple. Who was the architect of that? God. God told Moses in Exodus, here's the tabernacle. Here's the materials. Here's something called a lampstand. Here's what you're to make it from. Here's the materials. Here's the size. Here's what you're to do. Moses was called to be obedient, to lead God's people to construct and build the tabernacle. We see wonderful and glorious building projects in the Bible, and we know they're wonderful and glorious because God's the architect. His design, his will, his plan, certainly not the case with the Tower of Babel. What's missing? Man, the architect. Plan for the will of man. Purpose for the glory of man. This was a project, a massive project, but it was an attempt to rival the greatness and the glory of God. And while they desired to make a name for themselves, what's interesting here, we see at the end of, of verse 4, there was an underlying fear. There's also, so they were motivated by pride, but pride often is coupled together with fear. Look at verse 4. We see that they were working lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
We see that they had no desire to obey God's command to fill the earth. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to just stay together and be unified in one city. And they were afraid that God was going to make them do that. So they were attempting to build a mighty fortress of their own, so to speak, to, to secure the life that they wanted. They wanted to form a strong city together and to live off of their own strength. You know, pride and fear, again, they, they often go together. I read a quote this week that said this, ambition and fear motivate pride. Ambition and fear motivate pride. Rather than submitting to God, a prideful heart responds to fear with self-effort, working to secure life on your own, desiring something that's opposed to God's will, and then working to achieve and accomplish that by your own strength. And brothers and sisters, for those who by God's grace have been brought to trust in God, we don't have to live in fear. That's the rest we are reminded of this morning. We don't have to fear the future. We don't have to know what the future holds. In reality, the scripture actually prepares us that the future holds trials for us. We are prepared to know this life, this side of glory. We will both know joy, and because of the curse of sin in Genesis 3, we can expect, and the Bible equips us for this, we'll know pain, we'll know hardship, we will mourn death. In fact, if Christ doesn't return first, we all too will have a day where we suffer death and we die. We're, we're prepared and equipped to know there's joy ahead and there is also pain ahead. And we can trust God in all of it. We can trust God that he's sovereign and he's guiding us through every dark valley we may come to see in life. We are those who, by God's grace, have been brought to submission to his authority. And that's a good thing. Submission to his authority doesn't sound exciting to the world, but man, it is the most joyful life you could possibly live. It's a life of trusting God and receiving from his strength, receiving his wisdom, knowing him as our help. Well, God created humanity to live under his authority. In their pride, Adam and Eve wanted to live independent of God, and so they disobeyed God. They sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. They turned away from a loving relationship with God to live life apart from Him. And as a result of their sin, we see the fall of humanity. It's a curse that you and I were born under. No one had to teach us how to sin. We were born with this condition of being sinful. No one had to teach us how to be prideful. We were born prideful. And pride, naturally, it turns away from God's word. Pride turns away from God's wisdom and from his strength. Pride turns away from God's glory and seeks to make a name for yourself. No one has to teach you how to make a name for yourself. We're born sinful. For those of us who have been saved, we understand that the dominion of sin, the slavery of it, it's been lifted from over us. We are free to honor God. We don't have to live like that. But we also understand this side of glory, we will struggle with temptation, with the presence of sin in our lives, and therefore we should guard against self-glory. And we should understand that pride offends God. It's such a big deal against a holy God that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for the sin of pride and every other sin. Such a big deal that Jesus had to die to pay for it. Such an enslaving sin that you can't rescue yourself from it. You have to be delivered from the power of that sin by trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Well, Christian, I, I wonder, where are you tempted to make a name for yourself? 
Maybe that's a temptation at work. Maybe that's a temptation in your parenting that you want to be known as the awesome parent. Right? When the reality is, like, if you get beyond the Instagram pics and talk to parents in our lives, many of us are struggling with failures. We see our shortcomings. Uh, we're thankful for the fruit that God's bringing, but at the same time, we understand we need God's grace and his strength. Where are you tempted in education to make a name for yourself? Now, hear me clearly. I certainly do not mean to suggest that Christians should lack ambition. That is not the message here. In fact, I fear too, far too often in our circles, we downplay ambition. Christians love their celebrities. Christians love their Christian CEOs and business people. And sometimes Christians judge people and the work it takes to get to those places. That's what happens often. So we shouldn't downplay ambition, right? But what we should speak against, and what I'm speaking against here, is selfish ambition. Christians should be ambitious people, but we must be careful that we have a holy ambition. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul speaks about his ambition. It was to please God, to honor God. So whatever it is that God gives you, whatever educational opportunities, whatever business opportunities, whatever financial opportunities God gives you, that you would use those to honor Him, to glorify Him. What, what I'm speaking here against is a selfish ambition, the kind of ambition that Paul warned against in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's the kind of ambition that, that James warned against in James chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Selfish ambition sees life through the lens of how does this benefit me? What do I stand to gain from this? How does helping you benefit me? How does a relationship with you benefit me? It's a poison in every relationship, whether it's a relationship in marriage, in church, with your roommates. Selfishness is a poison. It views yourself as first and foremost what is important. God so graciously rescues his people from selfish ambition to say, how can my life be about glorifying God and doing good to others? And so, so I say this clearly, like, we want to encourage the members of this church, be ambitious with the talent, the pursuit that God gave you. Uh, we want to encourage you in what you're doing and the pursuits he's given you. It is not a bad thing to pursue advancement in the business world. You know, this church got replanted through someone who had a lot of money, who doesn't go to church here and never has, who wrote a $150,000 check to help get this church started and going. That takes a lot of career work to get to that place where you can get that kind of money. And I am so thankful for the humility of that couple that said, God gave us all this money and we want to use it to bless others and to be a part of spreading the gospel. They want to be a part of church planting. Again, we love those stories. We love to hear them. And the answer is not to, to turn away from any sort of ambition, but rather to make the most of what God's given you and to walk in a holy ambition. The people of Babel, they were not building a city or tower dedicated to the name of the Lord. They were building for their own name. And here's the danger. If you want to make a name for yourself, you will probably be able to do it. You'll probably get it. And that's all you'll get. You won't get a reward from the Lord for that. You'll get the reward of people's attention, probably for a very short period of time, 
probably for a lot less than you think they actually admire you. Because let's be honest, we're all so consumed with our own lives, we only think about you for a bit, and we go back to our own problems and worrying about us and what other people think about us. It's just a madness of focusing on self-glory. The people of Babel, they made a name for themselves. We are talking about them this morning. But it wasn't the type of name they thought they would have. It wasn't the name of glory and might and strength. They stand out as a cautionary tale of human folly and human pride. Be careful what you work for. Be careful what you wish for. And let us be those as a church that seek to help one another live and walk enjoying the glory of God. Well, let's look at that next at this second lesson on pride. It's in verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9, God opposes rivals to his glory. God opposes rivals to his glory. Now, the structure of this passage, it's arranged in the form of a chiasm, which that's a Hebrew literary device that we've seen before in Genesis. We last saw it in Genesis chapter 8. And what we see in a chiasm is that the the second half of the story, it kind of reflects in in, in mirror reverse image the first half of the story. So you can see in verse 1, the top of the chiasm, the the whole earth had one language. And then in verse 9, at the end there, you see the other end of that chiasm tells us the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. Kind of the, the bookends that show us this chiasm that kind of moves in an order and then back in reverse image. So the focal point, why this is important to know, the focal point of a chiasm is what we find in the middle. It's a literary device meant to communicate a truth in a kind of a unique way. The turning point of a chiasm is the middle, and the middle here is verse 5. The middle of the passage, that's the hinge. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Verse 5 serves as the turning point where we see the story changes from what was going down on earth to what was going on up in heaven. The scene changes to show us what God thought about all of this. Now Moses, the narrator, he uses the the language, the Lord came down to to see. He used that, in in other words, to show that the Lord came down and gave it a, a close inspection. But the type of language he's using here, we've seen this before in Genesis, we've called it anthropomorphic language. And simply this, this is language that ascribes human actions to God Almighty. So it's just a way of communicating truth to make a point. Certainly the Lord doesn't need to come down to get a closer look to figure out what was happening. The Lord knows everything. Just like in the Garden of Eden, we saw this. It wasn't like the Lord needed to look for where Adam and Eve were when they were hiding because he couldn't figure out where they were hiding. They were just so good at that. Well, well no, it's just showing God's pursuit. This anthropomorphic language here is another way, in another time in Genesis, we see God's pursuit. He, he came down. And this type of language here, coming down, condescending, it's actually meant to have a bit of a condescending tone. It, it's poking a bit. Moses poking at the pathetic attempt of humanity to make a name for themselves. Their glorious and grand tower built with their fancy handmade bricks, ascending so high into the skies. Well, when compared to the God of heaven, it's so puny as if the Lord needed to come down and have a look. As a kid taking a magnifying glass gets down into the grass to try to see these tiny bugs, it's kind of communicating 
What a pathetic and puny tower. It didn't impress God. It didn't stand out to God. It's not like God was blown away looking at this tower. Wow, look at what they've uh, established. Look at what they've built with their hands. This type of language, it's meant to be condescending. That's exactly what happened. The Lord came down. And while the people of Babel, through this tower, they thought they were showing their strength, rather it displayed their folly. The language here communicates the absurdity of aligning yourself as a rival to the Lord. His glory cannot be matched. The language here communicates how the seemingly great achievements of humanity can't be compared to the glory of God the Creator. The one who created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word was not impressed by the tower built by these people. People may have been impressed. People might have been impressed with themselves. People might have think, thought, man, we are awesome. Look at what we just built. Wow, we are proud of ourselves. They may have even snapped a picture of it back in the day, put it on Instagram if that existed, to show everyone, look at our awesome season of life. Look at what we're doing. But God wasn't impressed. And isn't that how self-glory works? Others might be impressed with your achievements. Others might be impressed with your accomplishments. You might be impressed with all that you've accomplished in life. But is God impressed? Not if you're living for the glory of yourself. Just as this tower fell short of the heavens, human glory falls far short, way short of God's glory. Verse 6 continues on to report what the Lord saw in his investigation of the matter. Verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The Lord, in his investigation, he saw evil, he saw a unified people, one language, working together for self-glory, and he would not permit that to continue. It wasn't that God was opposed to human progress or to human achievement. This was God opposing a movement of self-glory. This was God opposing a movement of people trying to establish life apart from him. This was God disbanding a kingdom that was built to try and rival his kingdom. What dishonored him again was not merely a city and a tower being built, but rather the spirit of living pridefully, independent of God and for self-glory. And in verse 7, we read God's judgment on the matter. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now you see more of the chiastic structure here. It continues on in verse 7. Again, we see the phrase, let us. This corresponds to what we saw in verse 3. There we saw the people of Babel saying, come, let us make bricks. And the Lord responds, come, let us go down and confuse their language. God would not let wickedness endure. They were unified. They were speaking one language, using that for, for harm, using that to, to try and build themselves up. And therefore, God divided them by causing them to speak many languages. This confusion that led to what people feared most, dispersion. Look there at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now they spoke different languages. It's awfully hard to work together and build if you speak different languages. For some of you, even you speak the same language, and you've put together Ikea furniture with your wife or your, with your roommate, and that's awfully difficult to do. Right? It's not usually a fun project. You speak the same language. 
Imagine speaking different languages and what that was going to do in this construction project and trying to work together. Uh, they, they left. They gave up. It was too difficult. They were confused. They couldn't understand one another. And what the people feared most, dispersion, which led to action of them pridefully working to build a strong city, their prideful efforts didn't work. Their prideful efforts didn't save them from what they feared, but rather delivered them right into it. The people ended up suffering what they worked so hard to prevent. God's judgment was to divide them. They were using their unity to oppose him and his glory, and so he dispersed them and spread them out. Now, we don't know all the details here, how it was they were dispersed. Did it happen in a moment, like instantaneous, like boom, you just kind of found yourself in South America or North America, like boom. We don't know. Did this just happen over time where because of the confused language, they started to move out over time. We don't get all of the details here and how this dispersal, dispersal took place. But however this happened, we do see clearly this was God's judgment. And this judgment was universal and it affected all of humanity. And as we've seen before with God's judgment in Genesis, his grace is right there with his judgment every time. We saw the judgment of, of the curse of sin on Adam and Eve. Uh, we, we saw the, the, the curse of, of pain and childbearing on Eve. That's the curse. But she also got the joy. She still got to have children. Grace right there with the curse of sin, the pain that comes from that curse. And, and here we see again God's judgment and his grace. God's action and his judgment was gracious because he would not leave the people to continue on in this type of opposition. God's judgment was gracious because it prevented the people from perpetuating more evil. They finished building the city. They finished building that tower. Evil would only grow from there. God had just judged the world universally through the flood because of how evil and wicked the world had grown. He only found Noah righteous on the face of the earth. God was gracious to intervene and to disrupt here. He graciously prevented humanity, fallen humanity, from reaching a sinful goal here. He graciously disrupted this building project and stopped the effort of the people building a name for themselves. The lesson here, I think, one takeaway is this. God will not allow rebellion against him to last forever. God will not allow rebellion against him to last forever. If you've got a Christian testimony here this morning, that's your testimony. Who interrupted your life when you were living in sin, walking in blindness of sin, disobeying God. It wasn't like all of a sudden you made the right choice and decided to get yourself right with God. If you're a Christian, your testimony is God saved me. I was heading away from him. I was living apart from his presence. In fact, I was enjoying sin, and God's the one who saved me. He's the one who put a distaste for sin into my mouth. He's the one who put a desire for him and his word. He's the one who convicted me of my sin. His spirit imparted to me is what brought me to new life and saved me. That's the Christian testimony you have if you're a Christian here this morning. You were transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. God did not allow your rebellion to last. And the good news is the same God who saved you is the God who will sanctify you. He will not allow temptation to win in your life. He will not allow sin to ever rule over you again. 
And I was kind of joking when I said, I, you know, I, I, want that, I wish that was the trump that sounded with the sound system, but I'm really not. Like, I, I want Christ to come back before I die. I would rather never have a funeral day. I'd rather Christ to return first. That's the Christian hope, right? We want to go be with him. We love him. We long for him. Prayers of confession remind us life is not as it should be. We don't want to live like this, Lord. We struggle with this. We are weary of our sin, and we long for you and to be in your presence. And the hope that we have is the same God who saved us, is the God who is sanctifying us, to finally deliver us into his kingdom. But hear this correctly as well. If you remain in your sin, your rebellion will not last forever. You have an opportunity here on earth to bow the knee, to trust in Jesus Christ, to seek forgiveness of your sins while it still may be found. And the tricky thing is that life apart from God can often seem exciting. It can often seem like people of Babel. Look at what we're accomplishing. Look at what we're achieving. Look at all the grand and glorious things in our life. Look at how fun this life is. Impressive achievements, levels of success. It may even seem to Christians sometimes, we may be tempted to think like the psalmist in Psalm 73, the wicked just seem to be prospering. They seem to have easier lives than, 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 than we do. Now, some may live their lives apart from God, and their whole life may seem like success and accomplishment, and all they do is win, and then they die like everyone else. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man, everyone wants to die, and then comes judgment. God will not allow rebellion to go on forever. He places his enemies under his feet through salvation and conversion. That's our testimony as Christians. There's also a final judgment that everyone here in this room will face. And that's why I do not think it is a great evangelistic tactic just to ask you how, how happy you were this past week. Because you might say, as an unbeliever, I was real happy this past week. I'm real happy with my life. And that is not the gauge of the spiritual reality in life. It's just your current happiness. You may die happy and then face an ending that we're telling you right now is true. God is going to judge you. And if you remain in your sin, you will forever be apart from him, living under his judgment in eternal conscious torment in hell. There is a moment of salvation that goes out from the church every single Sunday in the lives of our members throughout the week, calling you, pleading with you to repent and to find forgiveness while there's still time by trusting in the risen Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. One day we will all stand before God and be judged. One day the Lord Jesus indeed will come down a second time. There will be a final judgment. And for those who've been redeemed by God's grace, we will be saved to finally live in his glory. We will be finally saved to forever living in the joy of his eternal kingdom. But for those who remain in their sins, there is judgment and eternal torment. If you've come today, don't put this off. If you come today, you don't know Jesus. You're thinking, man, maybe this will be something more interesting in my life when I get older. Don't, don't put it off. Talk to someone who brought you this morning. Jonathan mentioned we've got pastors at the door on the way out. Talk to one of our members around you. We'd love to talk more with you about what it would look like to get right with God today, to be forgiven of your sins and saved to live for his glory. My friends, in closing, we see this story, and in this story, the, the folly of trying to build a name for your and the irony of trying to make a name for yourself, again, is 
you just might achieve that, but not in the way you think. Look at what verse 9 says, the name Babel became known for. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Again, a good Bible study tactic, the word therefore, it's there for a reason, right? Verse 9, it concludes with one of the main points of what Moses was wanting to make for the original audience. That was to explain the word Babel. The name Babel became known as confusion. We even say it like this because it's kind of like a, a wordplay on babbling, meaningless chatter. The, the Hebrew word here, it sounds even similar to the word for folly. We see the folly in this name of seeking to build a name for yourself. And the people of Babel ended up being remembered, not for their strength, but for their folly. The people of Babel sought for their name to be great. They sought to be a symbol of success and accomplishment, but they ended up being forever known as a symbol of godless folly and failure. They ended up being a story of the danger of living a life apart from God. They ended up being a symbol of God's judgment on prideful humanity. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, Babel became Babylon, the, the antitype to the city of Jerusalem. Throughout the rest of the story of the Bible, Babylon symbolizes human pride and rebellion against God. Throughout the rest of the story of the Bible, Babel represents a sinful ambition to rule the earth. Babylon symbolizes opposition to God and to his people. And so this story served to warn Israel that a people who rebelled against God would not endure. Those who opposed God would be scattered. And sadly, that's indeed what happened in Israel's future. They were scattered. They would be scattered among the nations. Later on in the Old Testament, God's people were delivered into exile where? In Babylon. Because of their prideful disobedience, stiff-necked disobedience to God. God eventually freed Israel from exile and captivity, let them return to the holy city of Jerusalem. We've tracked through that in our sermon series in Nehemiah together. We understood that return to Jerusalem paved the way for Jesus the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord, came down to earth to do the greatest work of freeing his people from captivity to sin. Through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, in Christ and in Christ alone, there is found new life, freedom from sin, forgiveness from sin to all who would trust in him. And upon his ascension back up to heaven, the Holy Spirit of God, the promised Holy Spirit of the new covenant that would come to dwell in all of God's people came down at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You want to hear more about that tonight? Come and Daniel Cox is going to preach about that tonight, Lord willing, at 5.30. But a teaser here in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit coming down at Pentecost, that was a reversal of Babel. There in the book of Acts in chapter 2, God gathered people in one place, in one city, all the nations coming back to one city in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, meaning men from every nation under heaven together in one city, hearing each other speak in his own language. Babel was reversed. Salvation went forth to the nations to bring back to God all who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has always been about this plan to spread his glory in the earth and to save people from every nation. Well, what are you giving your life to build for the glory of God? 
we all have different individual pursuits, right? You have different careers represented in this room. Do that to the glory of God. You have different situations in life. Some of you are trying to build families for the glory of God right now. It's an important ministry, an important responsibility and gift that the Lord gives you. But something every single member of this church has in common, what we celebrate on Sunday morning, the unity we have, church, we get to be a part of the greatest building project ever. Jesus himself promising that he will build his church as he so graciously chooses to use us to be a part of the greatest building project ever, the building up of the local church. Christ, through his people, the church, is calling the nations back. Christ, through his church, is spreading the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And you and I get to be a part of that. We've said this for five and a half years now. The greatest thing you can give your life to is the building up of the local church. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. This is God's plan to exalt his name, to spread his glory, and to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. And therefore, this there's nothing greater you can give your life to than building up the local church. There is nothing else you can give yourself to building that will last forever and bring God glory in eternity. And if you got slowed down during 2020, now's the time to catch back up. It is. If you got slowed down in ministry, if you got slowed down in church, if you got slowed down in your connection to it, we are back here by God's grace. We are back here. Our time is limited on earth. There is a ministry and a commission that God has given us. And I'm so thankful to see the members of our church back ready to be a part of gospel ministry. We talked last week about wanting to get back to global missions, praying for countries to reopen their borders. I would encourage each of you, member of this church, how can you play a part, God willing, the rest of this year in building up this local church? Through discipling others, being discipled, through evangelizing, uh, through helping restart things like the English Conversation Cafe. You can talk to Vera Hearn and others about that. Reestablishing children's ministries here. We've got VBS going on this summer. We've got summer camp going on for middle school and high school students. We've got the summer growth project for college students. How could you be a part of encouraging those ministries and being a part of building those things back for the glory of God, for the advance of the gospel? May we give ourselves to the joyful work of bringing God glory in the local church. As we celebrate this morning, another one coming into the church through baptism, may we remember our baptism when God so graciously brought us into his glory to live for him and to be a part of his building project for the rest of our lives. Let's bow and pray.